Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Alexi the Greek. And I'm Ren Cooper. Pleased to welcome to the podcast returning uh, champion Maximilian Alvarez uh, and his brother, if I'm not mistaken, uh, Zach Alvarez. Uh, and they're both from the associated with, in some ways, the Working uh, People podcast. Um, but I will let them introduce themselves more properly. Hey guys, great to great to be back. Thanks for having us on. And um, yeah, uh, um, I'm Max Alvarez. Uh, I've been on the show uh, twice before, um, and this is but this is the first time that I'm appearing with my my big bro Zach Alvarez, who has been um, kind of on my uh, on the Working People advisory board since the beginning, and has recently made his debut on the podcast for. Uh, a great bonus episode that we did on um, workers in like the professional and managerial classes um, of, of which Zach has a lot of firsthand experience. Um, but yeah, we're excited to, to kind of be on Zach. Why don't you hop in? Yeah. So I basically served as Max's uh, behind the scenes idea wall, I guess bounces stuff off me and I give him sort of the report from the corporate America or the corporate American perspective. The corporate and, um, consigliere, if you will. <laughs> exactly. I'm uh, exactly so hidden in the uh, in the walls of the uh, the corporate elite and uh, report back. So, um, but yeah, Max is. I, I guess growing up together, he sort of steadily pulled me out of my Orange County sort of Republican, and then University of Chicago economics. Ooh boy. Uh, yeah, so it's like a big tug of war that he's been steadily pulling. To I'm the very left, proud so. of you for coming out um, here on this podcast and admitting that. That is uh, is very brave. <laughs> and that yeah, may, I, maybe uh, you guys had something on. <laughs> uh, cor- correct me if I'm wrong here. It, it 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 feels to me, you know, based on some experience with people I've known in D.C. that that the University of Chicago, at least as of a few years ago, had kind of two effects. Either you became a libertarian you know, Ayn Rand nutcase, or you reacted so strongly against that, you know, sort of dominant tendency that you became a communist. <laughs> Isn't Marshall Steinbaum also? Yes, yes, yeah, okay. he is. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's a fair characterization. And then there are the people who graduated into the financial crisis and just had so much other shit to worry about. They couldn't make up their mind about where they fell on the political spectrum. We're That's just trying fair. to fall through the cracks of our economy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I feel I feel like uh that was probably I probably fit more into that category. Right? And I've I've talked about this um kind of on other shows that, you know, when Zach and I got to the uh, University of Chicago, he was two years ahead of me and and uh I very much kind of followed in his in his footsteps because I didn't really know much about Chicago before that. Um but I had gone to visit him. I really liked the atmosphere, uh, especially kind of in comparison to like the Ivy Leagues and stuff like that. But when we both got there, we were very much uh, you know, raised conservative and and very Catholic. And, you know, I think that the four years at Chicago was definitely critical in terms of 
uh, opening up my uh, perspective. Um, I've talked about how like literature was actually really important for me. Um, and I studied Russian literature at the University of Chicago after I decided to switch from pre-med bio. Um, and, and honestly, I know it's probably cliche, but like studying literature at that depth you know, it really helped me to, uh, I guess, think about and see the world, you know, outside of my own head, right through through the characters and experiences and interior lives uh, presented by people like Dostoevsky and Gogol and Tolstoy, all the kind of classic you know, Russian uh, 101 kind of authors that I really got into. And so I think that really laid the groundwork for me to kind of get out of my own head um, and all the conservative kind of um, preconceptions that I had going into college. But then it was really getting spat out, you know, into the fucking recession and like, <laughs> you know, working shitty job after shitty job and our, you know, our family crisis, you know, that, that I've talked about on the show before. I think that was kind of the real material force behind my own kind of intellectual and political radicalization. And every step of the way, Zach and, and you know, like my our other siblings, Jesse and McKenna have been like my main interlocutors throughout all of that. So you're so you're telling me that there is more to life than studying graphs of real GDP growth? I don't know. I'm I'm a little skeptical about this. I don't know so what actually <laughs> Yeah, not real GDP, but utility maximization. Oh yeah. Oh, that's graphs. the good stuff. That's the stuff. Yeah. 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 You, <laughs> you gotta you gotta get your utils in there, you know. The <laughs> exactly. the the people are crying out, more utils, please. <laughs> <laughs> I just did a, a big, um, you know, big special episode of Working People where I interviewed like eight workers from the, the France general strike. And oddly enough, that was their main slogan. Utils. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, Word if, spreading. It, it's, exactly, it's spreading. If I'm not, if I'm not mistaken, um, yeah, that's I how it goes. A, Egalité, fraternité, utilité. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, Zach, you, uh, Zach, weren't you? You were considering going to read, weren't you? Because that's where Ryan went. Look. Uh, okay. <laughs> the, the anti Chicago. No. <laughs> Yeah, no, the answer is no. I had a, a professor, my sociology professor, who I loved, and he's the one who um, <laughs> we had like kind of a love hate relationship where um, I was like the one kid in his class who would who would write like the, the slightly conservative paper, um, but it was well argued enough to where he's like, all right, I kind of respect this, but this kid's annoying. He went to read and we kept ah. in touch. And so ah. I got a little bit of that. Um, but no, I was dead set on UFC and the thing it's, we all joke about, you know, <laughs> utility maximization, but I would say like back to the characterization of like how people come out because you spend so much time dealing with this, this utility maximization stuff, which utility means nothing. Right. And I feel like half the people coming out of Chicago, because it means nothing, they, they take economic ideas and put them everywhere because everything can be utility. Um, so it's not actually like super conservative as much as it is, yeah, like bordering towards that, I don't want to say Ayn Rand, but yeah, certainly the Milton Friedman, uh, you know, free market stuff. So that's probably the most intolerable thing about UFC econ students is they think that you can apply the economic models as broadly as, as you want. True believers. 
Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah, War and Peace is reading War and Peace gets you forty seven point six five utils, um, and you know minimum. Yeah, yeah, D- Dostoevsky, you know, Crime and Punishment, you're talking thirty seven point six thereabouts, you know, on average, depending <laughs> on your toleration for for uh, you know his wacky personality. And so, so Zach, did you not get <laughs> radicalized until? Uh, did Max radicalize you, or was it the corporate world? It sounds like maybe the corporate world, uh, or where, both. You, where or both, where where you saw yeah. the danger of the utils in action or something. I think it's more like you get disillusioned by the corporate world, right? So you're kind of open to you become like this blank slate for like a two year period, and I feel like that's when a lot of people end up going back to school for somebody to write on it. And in that period, for me, that's when like basically Max was going to get his PhD. And that's really Max when you like when he had his sort of radical shift a year after Michigan. I was like, "Who? Wait a minute, what?" <laughs> like all the stuff he was talking about. Um, there are no utils in what he's saying. What? What? What happened to you? <laughs> exactly. I was like, Max, what about the utils? You've left them behind. And then really, it was like I would say it's for me, like the the major turning point was uh, was the Bernie Sanders campaign. You know, I, I would consider myself like a standard corporate Democrat before that. Hmm. Um, there must have been yeah. some life experience that resonated with what Bernie was saying, though, right? Like what 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 about the campaign shifted something for you or, or what resonated for you? Yeah. So so first off, like some access, I don't I want to rehash the sort of the crisis that our family went through because and this is going to be really embarrassing, right? Like I and I talked about this on the working people pod. I kind of had no idea of just how bad the 08 crisis was because all the stuff that happened to my family happened like, Oh, probably three or four years after the heart of the crisis, because there was so much foreclosure inventory by the time they got to like my parents, you know, they were working through that for a long period of time. I kind of for a second thought everything was okay. Um, and I just got really lucky, happened to work for a couple places that, that missed, some of the most um, devastating parts of that crisis. So, you know, I, I knew what was going on. I remember the Lehman collapse and all that stuff, but I really had no idea about just how devastating the impacts were. And I was living in Chicago, you know, I've lived here since college. And if you live on the North side, like you just, you're, you literally are insulated. So when Bernie Sanders emerged, I kind of, I just didn't really know where it came from. And then obviously Trump, I was like, what, what is all this? And I was just so ignorant. And that's where I think Max opened my eyes. And then, of course, with my parents' situation, sort of what was going on in our family, I just, um, you know, got a got a dose of reality in terms of what it what it actually happened. And then, you know, I start I I actually left consulting to to take like a three month leave. Um, just to kind of get a grip on on what was going on, where I fit in, what I was doing. You know, I was management consulting is one of those things where, um, you know, the pitch they give you is if you don't know what you want to do, come come to management consulting, right? And they have these great ways of shielding sort of the bad things that you're doing, right? You put up a flow chart with like functions instead of these are real people's jobs, right? And if I can eliminate a couple of functions or replace them with technology, like maybe if you really sat with it, you'd realize that those were jobs that you were talking about. Um, 
but you're working in the corporate offices of these companies and you don't really see the effects. And so I, you know, started to catch up with me and I needed to just sort of sit back and think what the hell was going on? What was I doing? And, you know, really think hard about my politics. Cause again, I just sort of accepted the politics of the people around me. And, well, um, well, and I would yeah. say like, if I could, if I could hop in, like, um, that's where I think, um, you know, mine and Zach's like political trajectory, you know, is, is rooted in the same soil. And I think for, it, you know, in that sense, we are not, you know, anomalies by any stretch of the imagination, right? I mean, you know, Bernie's um, campaign really took off the way that it did because I think so many of us, right, you know, like we're feeling this same sort of way, like the 2008 um, kind of recession, Right. Like it was as much kind of a, a kind of breaking of the seeming permanence and indestructibility of our kind of global political economy as it was kind of like, um, you know, a, a breaking in the seeming permanence of like just the, the kind of epistemology of capitalism. Right. It, it was a, it, it showed, I think, at least a more people in our generation but even beyond that right that this system was more volatile than we had been taught to believe growing up um and that it it wasn't um as kind of uh, permanent as we had been taught to believe and i think that when that sort of fissure opened up you know you had kind of people asking about other political and economic possibilities and that that was the kind of like soil in which our respective kind of questioning of the kind of political axioms that we had grown up with and the, the axioms of the um, kind of political arena between, you know, the, the Republicans and Democrats so defined. Right. I think so many of us were starting to see that it didn't have to be limited to the kind of shitty uh, options that that we had been um, given for or presented with our entire lives. And I think you saw kind of people pushing those sorts of boundaries of the possible with Occupy Wall Street, um, with other kind of social movements from, you know, Black Lives Matter to, you know, global um, the resurgence of the labor movement in the U.S. and abroad. Right. I think I think that, you know, in many ways we can trace that sort of um, uh, the, the kind of political trends that have developed since the recession to a kind of um, like I was saying, like a like a philosophical, uh, an epistemological break with kind of the status quo that, you know, for better or for worse, the, the global recession, I think, really opened up for a lot of us. Yeah, there there's a great book that I've been uh, reading for a review uh, by Reed Hunt, who was, I think he was chairman of the FCC during the Clinton years for a while. And he was also on Obama's transition team. And he wrote a book called A Crisis Wasted, which is about like all the most important decisions that Obama made in his, uh, you know, setting up his, his first actions. And, um, you know, speaking of the foreclosure crisis, you know, there, there, you know, you, you are looking at this huge loss of wealth that had happened, you know, the, 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 the lending on the basis of all these incredibly overvalued assets in the forms of homes and in forms of, you know, securities and derivatives that had been based on those homes. And so somebody's going to eat the loss. 
And the decision in the Obama team was, well, the banks can't eat it because they're already unstable and we need to stabilize the banks. And the government can't eat it or can't be seen to eat it. You know, you can't just go in and say, we're going to assume all this stuff and everyone's going to have a do-over because that would be politically unpopular. And so we're just going to have to have a shitload of foreclosures. And we can't go in and do principal reductions for people who, who are underwater on their mortgages because that will hurt the banks. And, you know, even their, um, you know, their, their uh, interest rate modification program, HAMP, uh, was such a a Kafkaesque bureaucratic nightmare that almost nobody participated, and so you got ten million foreclosures, and um, those were you know kind of economic neutron bombs across the country that were heavily concentrated in uh, you know places where Donald Trump ended up doing quite well, um, and yeah, so as you as you say, I think you know the universe of political possibility, you know, being being that like you know, effectively saying, well, the banks have a gun to the head of the entire economy. And the only thing that you can do is to just stuff money into their, you know, sort of sucking chest wounds until they they recover. Uh, what, you know, like this is our only, the only thing you can do. And that's what, uh, that's what they, that's what Tim Geithner and Ben Bernanke and Henry Paulson have. That's what they say in a book that they're, that, that recently came out. That this was our only option, and that you know you you just had to you just had to you know have your wall of money and uh, give the bankers the bonuses that they were contracted before the crisis or whatever. Um, not like no, the it, there has to be another way of doing this, and in fact there is, but you know they had sort of ruled it out according to their own internal ideology, and, and this is the big thing. I think this is the big discovery that a lot of us made, which was how ideological these economists and these politicians relying on these economists were, rather than just like, oh, this is just what the economics says we should do. It was clearly not that. It was clearly like actually going against what proper economics would say to do. Uh, in fact, like the political decisions about how big the stimulus should be, right? Oh, the, the word trillion sounds scary. Maybe we shouldn't do <laughs> that's, that. That's very utils right there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Can't have uh, T words in the discussion. <laughs> yeah. But, and, you know, you had even liberals like Paul Krugman thought it was totally insufficient. And you had liberals like John Stewart saying, wait a minute, why don't we just forgive all of the borrowers? Like, forgive all their debt. Like, what? Why are we, what, you know, even just like straight up liberals, forget leftists were so confused and confounded why things were going this way at a moment of crisis where you would have all the leverage in the world to do all kinds of good things. Right. Yeah. Right. And that's like, to me, I think like the, the big eye opening things for me, like all, everything you guys are saying, one, just the, just the fact that like it took four years for the foreclosures to come around to like my parents was in, was wild enough, but beyond the initial bailout, you know, the, as a every good sort of econ nerd does, like I follow Fed policy pretty closely, and I would say like if if you were part of the economists who wanted to be go into academia, like the the dream job for those folks was like, well, you'd be chairman of the Fed, right? Um, and it's sort of the continued, um, why wouldn't you call it like bank welfare that the Fed has embarked on that really was maybe like one of the big eye openers for me, you know, the quantitative easing policy, the zero interest rate policy, 
it's basically just free money, right? And you realize the banks are taking that money and then literally redepositing it with the Fed and earning like a 2% interest rate. It's just literally a free payout. Um, Can you explain the, con- was- the context in which that arose and for people that aren't aware, like what that's about? Yeah. So the idea was that in crisis, right, the Federal Reserve drops interest rates all the way down to zero, right? And that's going to jumpstart the economy because it means the banks will loan out money. Well, they'll, first they'll borrow money from, um, you know, the Fed or Treasury at no interest. And then they'll turn around and loan that out because any interest they're getting on it is going to be profit. Um, so that was the idea. Um, but in the financial crisis, they took this second drastic step, which is called quantitative easing, where the Federal Reserve decided they were going to buy um, U.S. government bonds, as well as the toxic mortgage-backed securities that were on the balance sheets of the banks. And so they basically took those off the banks, put them on the Federal Reserve balance sheet, and then swapped it for cash, right? And the idea, again, is that you take that cash and you start pumping it into the economy, now, quantitative easing was supposed to be this literal crisis measure that that um, was supposed to end quickly, right? Restabilize the banks, get a in, huge injection of money flowing into the economy, and then we'd be able to turn it around. But when you find out that there was basically um, multiple rounds of quantitative easing under Bernanke, each one more uh, money injected into the economy, and it's created all these awful incentives, right? So if you're a bank... You know, the, the theory, right, taking that money and, and loaning it to small business or loaning it out for mortgages, these types of things, you know, that creates a lot of the cash that goes on to corporate balance sheet or the corporate uh, interest takeout that use to purchase their stock or do stock buybacks. Um, it also drives interest rates down on what's called a, a, the risk-free assets, right? So U.S. government bonds. Um, those are the assets that pensions, that insurance companies rely on, right? So you want to get a 7% return, but you don't want to take too much risk. A lot of these, comp- well, a lot of these um, institutions aren't allowed to hold very risky assets on their balance sheet, right, for good reason, so that pensions um, you know, aren't screwed if there's a, a huge downturn. But what happens is that with these policies, you you crushed the rate of return on safe assets. So if you're a pension and you've got to make 7% return, you can't do it in government bonds, right? You can't do it in government and uh, investment-grade corporate debt. You have to go out on the risk curve. And so these pensions and insurance companies and big institutional players in the U.S. economy are overweight, very risky stuff. And I think... Um, you know, the reason why so many people are concerned or, or sort of people who track sort of the, what quantitative easing has done to assets are extremely concerned because pension funds will get, will be in a very rough position should we get, you know, a, a big stock market meltdown or a, a downgrade in a big AAA corporate entity, right? So it's a really scary time. How long has um, this been a problem? How long has this been going on? It's essentially been a problem since, you know, the final round of quantitative easing. Now, the other thing is that quantitative easing is supporting the stock market, right? Um, one of the first conversations Max and I had um, where, where I was kind of coming to this awakening is he was talking about inequality, right? And this might have been when, when you know, Piketty's book 
came out and I said, well, we have to answer the question why inequality, wealth inequality spiked so much under Obama and that you can kind of directly go back and look at the Fed policy as one of those major contributors. Because again, as that ca- the free cash sort of finds its way into the economy, if you're a bank, you turn around, you loan that money to Apple. Apple says, great, I'm going to take that money. I'll invest some of it, but I'm going to buy back my stock. And the bank gets the orders on those big stock purchases, right? So they front run and purchase a bunch of Apple stock before the orders go through and everybody wins, right? And this they've been playing this circular game. And it really, uh, I sort of came onto it between Quantavis in round two and three, um, because that was sort of a precarious time for the markets. We had already cleared the highs from, uh, you know, 2007 in the stock market. And so everybody said, all right, it's time for the Fed to step back. But the markets have basically been addicted to these policies. They got hooked on the good stuff, the Sudafed. They got hooked on the good stuff. And there's a great chart, right? If you look at the Fed balance sheet and you plot it against the um, S&P 500, it's almost a one-to-one correlation. It's insane, right? But all that money flowing into the economy has propped up assets. And if you've been an asset owner, it's great for you, right? But if you think about what's juiced wealth inequality the most... It's all that free money flowing in and supporting this this game that continues to go on. So I am not an economist. I don't even play one on TV, but <laughs> let me see if I'm tracking this. So we've got, um, they're juicing things. So obviously, uh, there's a big benefit to the corporations that can do stock buybacks and all kinds of uh, benefits that go to not the working people, but to those who have the money to take advantage of this. Meanwhile, that's also harming safe returns for people who are trying to lock in like their 7% returns and in, in things that should be safe, but maybe aren't now because of the, the pressure put on uh, by this. And maybe there's like a bubble or two that's being threatened to burst because of it. Like I'm trying to track like what the consequences are that you're talking about. Is that some yeah, layperson's yeah. basically what's, what's going on? Yeah, all that's correct. And then I would say the other thing too that happened, right, is that savings, like you have, you, you, you've crushed savings, right? Okay. I mean, I don't know how yeah, you can't <laughs> save. There's no, you, yeah, yeah. Yeah. If you look at the interest you get on your savings, right, it's like 0.1 um, annually. It's nothing. Um, so you, you, again, you've <clears throat> basically, Fed policy has ended up becoming welfare for big corporations. It's forced pensions to become riskier in their investing to be able to support the growth they need to meet their obligations, and then you've crushed savers. So if there is some sort of pullback or bubble, which I wouldn't say, you know, maybe there is, maybe there isn't, but if there is a pullback, um, you would expect pensions and institutional investors to get hit a lot harder than maybe they would have um, if they were able to get the right returns in the safe assets they normally get them in. Well, and, you know, just to, like, add one more thing to the pot, because, uh, yeah, now, now you guys know how I feel <clears throat> when I'm talking to Zach. And uh, most of the time when he's explaining all this to me, I'm like, yeah, but also, fuck the bourgeoisie. How about that? What do you got to say about that? Yeah. No, <laughs> Mr. Chicago. But, um, you know, uh, I, I think um, just to, to maybe, like, you know, uh, connect you know, what we're saying about the, um, you know, 2008 crash to kind of our political climate now, you know, like I, like I said, you know, we just put together this massive, um, you know, special episode for working people on the French general strike. That's awesome. You know, 
Um, yeah, I mean, it was, um, it, it's something that, you know, we, we've talked about this, um, something that Zach and, and, uh, McKenna and I, we've talked about, um, you know, and I, I think we even talked about it last time I was on, uh, the, the show, right. Is that, you know, I think that I really want to, you know, build working people up into something that, you know, we can use as a platform to build international worker solidarity because to combat the the forces that Zach is describing here. And this is why, you know, the conversations that we have are so integral to thinking, strategizing about what we want the show itself to be. Right. And and this is this comes through in in all the conversations that I have with workers, especially workers like at the GM factories who know that the only ways that they can combat a multi you know national corporation is by not limiting themselves to you know like their own kind of national borders they need to build a sense of solidarity and and robust labor presence across national borders um, in order to fight these sorts of fluid kind of destructive forces of capital and you see that you know front and center in the the french strikes right now right i mean just last week uh, things really kind of took a sharp political term um, where, you know, you had these uh, proposed reforms to the pension system in France that Macron's government had put forward that, you know, in a nutshell, you can listen to the episode if you want more details, but in a nutshell, right, it would kind of... Um, push French workers to retire later and take uh, in less kind of monthly uh, earnings from their pensions. One of the reasons for that would be that, you know, normally French pensioners, their uh, the rate of their pension is determined by kind of like averaging out the last their last four paychecks. So you essentially get, you know, your best income that you have spent your whole life working towards and you get to kind of ride that out through your pension whereas macron's reforms would average out your income earnings throughout your entire working life so on top of like your better salary that you have in your 50s it would be averaging that out with like the shitty wages you made in your 20s and 30s and so you'd ultimately get less pension uh but i bring that up because you know, as things have developed, right, the, the the strikers have really started to push on this narrative that Macron is uh, really the puppet working at the behest of firms like BlackRock, uh, who are essentially trying to use the, the government as a, you know, tool, a blunt uh, instrument in order to smash the kind of... Um, system of pensions that had been set up after world war ii and push you know the the french pension system towards a more privatized um you know investment fund based uh system like we have here to the point where uh french strikers stormed the european or the french uh, headquarters of blackrock and set fire to the fucking thing like they, <laughs> Gotta love they, they started, god bless them. yeah they started a massive bonfire in the foyer of blackrock's headquarters and a lot of their signs you know are kind of speaking to this, um, you know, deep, deep um, hatred and resentment, not only of, you know, the the kind of neoliberal face of uh, the government policies, whether they be Obama's or Macron's that people see as instituting this sort of like sea change that they feel more or less powerless to fend off. But also there is a an explicit recognition, right, of the the, the machinations of everything that Zach was describing here. So I, I, I guess I just wanted to kind of loop that in, you know, since we started by talking about how this all kind of 
connects not just uh, to, to the economic side, but how that translates to kind of the political developments, both in our own personal political development, but also, you know, in the U.S. and, and abroad. Yeah, no, that's a great point. And in fact, there's an explicit connection here um, between the Fed bailout and what's happening in Europe. Um because, you know, I, I think the, you know, a, a decent summary of the, the bailout policy, you know, Obama, Obama characterized um, the, the, the financial system as like a plumbing uh, apparatus, I believe, on several occasions, that the, that the financial crisis was sort of a clog. And what you needed to do was to shove the clog out and then the credit would flow. And so this was sort of the point of all of these, you know, you know, quantitative easing, all the various bailout shit, just stuff money into the banks. And then eventually that will make its way through, you know, the, the, the architecture of finance to become, uh, you know, to, to, in the form of, you know, home loans, auto loans, credit cards, whatever, like down to Joe, Joe Q consumer. Um, but you know, that in fact didn't happen. It, it all just sat there for the most part. And bankers contrived a bunch of different ways to sort of profit on that. But the international dimension comes in with with respect to the bailout with the uh, swap lines that Ben Bernanke opened uh, in the pits of the crisis because the European banks had shitloads of dollar-denominated assets, and and a lot of them were uh, mortgage-backed trash, just toxic waste. But unlike the United States, European banks, the European states and the European Central Bank had no ability to print dollars. You know, at the end of the day, the Fed could step in and just be like, if there's ever an utter crisis of confidence, we can step in with our printing press and just like make everybody whole. But you can't do that in France or, you know, or Germany. And and the French and German banks were heavily invested in this and in other stuff. You know, this is a sort of a uh, what, the story of the the Greek crisis as well, saving the the, the French and German banks. But anyways, um, Ben Bernanke opened these swap lines, which allowed the Europeans basically to print dollars at will. You could print up some euros and trade them for dollars, uh, at, you know, with a little premium in there, of course, but. You know, that that effectively granted them the ability in the crisis to save their banking system in Europe, which otherwise would have it would have absolutely collapsed. You know, they 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 could not they did not possibly have the, the amount of dollar reserves that countries like China and Russia did have and, and Korea and Taiwan, I believe. Um, you know, they, they just hadn't really thought about it that much. They thought, oh, this is an American problem. No, no, not at all. Um, and so there was this just absolutely hidden, nobody's, nobody really talks about it. You know, I didn't even learn about it until I read, uh, Adam Tooze's book in like, like a year ago, um, to basically allow the wealthy Western European states, a couple of, a couple of, uh, countries applied for this authority and we're not granted. We still don't know who, and to get the details of this, there was a suit that had to go all the way to the Supreme court to get to get the uh, the details on it but the french did the same thing with their banks uh you know under the domination of the european central bank and so on which is definitely dominated by that uh that that blackrock mentality that you just have to do whatever finance says basically at the end of the day 
to try to unclog their financial system, which basically didn't work in the same way that it didn't work in the United States. And so, you know, the working class in Europe and in Asia and in the United States and everywhere else really is at the mercy of this, um, you know, international financial regime whose single most important institution is the Federal Reserve, you know, and the and, you know, coupled to the whole network of uh, financial, you know, uh, the SWIFT system is very complicated. But, you know, basically the U.S. government controls the sort of global um, uh, system of of like economic, uh, you know, financial uh back and forth between all these countries, which is how you can have like sanctions on Iran. Um, and so, you know, definitely if you want to be in solidarity with, you know, the, 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 the strikers in France, you know, one place where you could start would be to try to take over that system and run it in a much more egalitarian fashion. But what the strikers don't understand is, you know, thank God for the adults in the room. The sober apolitical elites who are simply soberly managing the global economy together. Um, no, no. So like the, the great thing about burning shit down is that it gives lie to that, right? Like, like it's like, okay, you and your utils, fuck you. You're just making a power play. And so we're going to make a power play and make it really clear what's going on, right? There's your side and there's our side and fuck you and your graphs, right? Right. Well, like, like to me, the, the most interesting part of like the French stuff, like, like, I don't know, a year ago, if I mentioned BlackRock, like, did any of you guys, I mean, they weren't really on the radar in terms of, like, I don't know, evil company. They'd be like yeah. Goldman Sachs. And, you think Blackwater. You know, it was BlackRock. Yeah, exactly. Was BlackRock involved in the foreclosure crisis? That's because that's where that name rings a bell. No, so, so BlackRock, okay. well, kind of, right? So okay. they bought, they, they sort of, the Federal Reserve brokered huge buckets of foreclosed properties, basically. Like, they dumped them on big institutional investors. Uh, but it, long, long story there. But BlackRock is the biggest asset manager in the world, right? They manage like upwards $7.5 trillion in assets. So the fact that they became like, because everything I just described, like the European Central Bank is doing Fed policy on like steroids, right? Because, you know, you laid out in 2012, the European banks basically were going to collapse we opened up swap lines, um, but then they started printing. They had their own version of quantitative easing, which basically is still going on um, under Mario Draghi. Now that he's stepped out, we'll we'll see what happens. But the whole crushing savers, you know, burning safe assets stuff that I talked about in Europe, it's it's way worse, right? They have negative rates. When you save your money, you put a hundred dollars away, you get ninety-seven back in ten years. It's crazy, right? And again, pensions are full of those types of assets. So if you're BlackRock, so basically the way they, like if I'm the French pension system, I can't go buy Apple stock, let's say, right? But if I give my money to BlackRock, they can kind of go buy it for me on behalf of the pension, right? They can manage a portion of it. Um, and so I can, you know, again, balance my returns against <laughs> negative returns in European bonds. So, you know, BlackRock, obviously has some window into like, look, France, you guys can't meet your obligations and they're going to come with a nice sort of spreadsheet that says, this is what you need to do. These are the cuts you need to make. Right. So that 
we can keep getting all the free money that's coming through the central banks and not disrupt that process. What we'll do instead is, you know, hit the workers like, like we always do. Right. And so the, the idea that like the, the, the protesters knew to go into that particular building and go after BlackRock, like they're savvy. It, it gives me hope, right. That like, yeah. they, cause like for the longest time I always, my, my big fear was, or frustration is I felt like everybody was looking at the wrong part of the problem, right? They're looking at like how much money you get to keep, right? So they look at tax rates and things like that. And it's like, fine, you, the, the tax rates, 32 or 38, you know, whatever, um, between the Obama and Bush and Trump rates, like that's going to give you some ability to, to shift wealth around. But like like, the, the average in, marginal tax rate, you mean? Is that yeah, the, yeah. the top marginal tax rate. I was like, the source of the problem isn't with tax rates. It's with where the money that's printed goes, right? And it goes into this little financial merry-go-round where the only people who basically get to eat at the table are these big institutions, right, and investors. Um, and the reason why, like, Bernie Sanders was an eye-opener for me is basically his whole um, – platform, right? Everything that he wants to do. Again, some of that you could do through taxation and redistribution, but it's not going to be enough, right? You would have to change Federal Reserve policy from basically what we've been on, which is sort of a continuation of, you know, Greenspan, sort of support the markets, full employment, those types of goals into, you know, something that's becoming more and more popular, um, something called modern monetary theory, right? You would need the Federal Reserve to shift or basically support these government projects, right? So what you're doing is you're going to the well and redirecting where it's going to flow. And that to me was, I was like, okay, I don't really care about anything except for like, how do we switch fed policy? And it's really difficult because it's, it's got this reputation, right? It's supposed to be independent of government and its own body, which is only supporting the economy. But in reality, it, it knows exactly what it's doing. It doesn't just support um, you know, full employment, as it would say. And so you have to redirect where that, where the, basically the, the spring is going. And Bernie's agenda was the only one where you'd actually have to do that. So are you supporting and you would hope for people running the Fed that are MMT thinkers? Or is that, is that what you would hope? What would be your, your hope for what Bernie, uh, President Bernie might do in terms of uh, nominees? Yeah, so he I don't know exactly who would he shortlisted, but I think it's um, you know, Stephanie Keaton, right, is is Kelton, advising yeah. him. She's Kelton, Kelton, sorry. And she's sort of the um you know, the biggest MMT name out there. So yeah, I wouldn't great. be shocked if it was somebody like that. Um yeah, she's advising from, his campaign, so that that makes sense. Yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um but again, like, like to me, like if you really want to fundamentally change things, redistribution isn't enough. You have to you have to create um, where that, where the dollars flow into the economy. Well, and, you know, to kind of, um, talk about that from, um, I guess like a, a bottom up 
political perspective, right? This this is like the um, topic that Zach and I started kind of getting into when uh, we did the bonus episode uh, on meritocracy um, and for working people, right? Because the, the 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 frame of that episode, it, you know, I think on the surface it may not seem you know um, uh, too connected to what we're talking about here, but I think it 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 really really is connected when we start talking about um, these institutions in terms of the people who uh, work there, right? And, and the people who work in adjacent institutions and what sorts of political roles they could have, right? Because, you know, we gave the example of the the French strikers who, you know, it, it's the, the strike has brought in workers from so many sectors, but it was started by uh, the railroad workers who have kind of more or less shut down transportation in France, right? I mean, uh, one of the railroad workers that I talked to, he was like, there's no underground trains in Paris right now. And he, he's like, I've never seen that in my life. But it's also brought in a shit ton of teachers. It has brought in all types of workers from the cultural sector. I spoke with a, a, a worker from like the National Museum and, and, and library system. The the freaking opera um, workers and ballerinas were giving free uh, performances for the people. Like there's so many great images of different types of workers and a shit ton of students and young people getting involved in this strike but uh, but i think that's one part of this right that's one part of kind of the 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 more i suppose blue collar um and and lower income workers that we tend to associate with kind of the the roiling populist rage uh that that is kind of attempting in one way or another to confront this kind of global hegemonic uh capitalist system what Zach, I think, um, you know, really brought to the, the the kind of broader working people conversation, right, was like, you know, what the kind of um, who who the people are who you know are working in these more white collar uh, institutions that you know are are integral in some form or another to this kind of smooth functioning of finance capital and so on and so forth. What their daily lives are like, what sorts of um, jobs that they are doing, what social functions they are performing, and and on top of that, like what their class position right means for their politics right and this is where we get th this really becomes tangible right where we talk about things like uh you know bernie bernie's base being kind of more steeped in uh younger people lower income people more diverse working class people and elizabeth warren's you know kind of uh, the other progressive option you know her base being more older voters more uh, affluent and college educated voters right i mean if we're talking about how to address this system and what sorts of coalitions we would need to build and, and what sorts of methods we would need to employ uh, to actually challenge this system, right? I think we need to start, the left especially, needs to start taking um, these other uh, sectors of workers more seriously and, and to think, you know, kind of um, more pragmatically about uh, their social economic and and political station you know like in this entire system that's a great point we talked to matt carp about um these kinds of issues and, and the bernie base and the warren base and one of the things we all agreed on i think is that um one i don't think you can do it without bernie's base like like we we're all bernie supporters but also we think that you need that working class 
kind of base. And you can't really have a true leftist movement just with whether you call it the PMCers or the more affluent and highly educated bit. But we also said that we also need to bring those people over to the movement and you can't completely leave them out. We don't have the numbers without them. And they're very important to convert to a leftist cause and to unite eventually, uh, hopefully under the Bernie campaign and of course in non-electoral politics and organizing and everything. So, so, uh, you know, to your point, Max, like, what you know? What are some things that you guys think we should uh, keep in mind as we try to build this coalition and understand better, uh, not in this simplistic binary way? Uh, that you know what the petty bourgeoisie—they're workers too. And as Ryan has said before, look—you know, nurses and and other professionals, or even doctors, or lawyers, or consultants—they're workers. They might make a lot of money, but you know what? fucking single payer would be good for them too. And that's in their material interests also. So like, what are some of the things you guys think about in terms of building this coalition and thinking um, maybe slightly differently about those class formations? Uh, well, I've, I've got a, uh, <clears throat> you want to take that first, Max? Okay. <laughs> um, well, to, maybe to set things up a little bit with a historical example, um, uh, I was in this conversation. I'm reminded of FDR's um, central banker, a guy named Mariner Eccles, who was uh, a Utah banker, and he um, became he anticipated Keynes in many ways in his thinking. Um, lived lived through the 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 Great Depression and managed to save his his own bank with some canny tactics, but came to believe that. The whole problem of the the nineteen twenties and um, the Great Depression was inequality. That uh, there was not enough money, as you say, Zach, getting down to you know Joe Q consumer, and that you know you had this sort of merry-go-round of money that was piling up at the top with nowhere to go because there were no real enterprises that could sell to the mass can you know. Uh, mass consumption uh, base that must underpin any sort of industrial economy. Um, and so he, you know, he was doing stuff like just straight up monetizing the U.S. debt, you know, just just buying up the debt with printed money, keeping interest rates down so they could fight the war and so on. You know, all the stuff that was that that is now, you know, according to the the serious neoliberals, you know, totally anathema, incredibly irresponsible. You can't monetize debt. That's a uh, that's horrible. But, um, you know, he, he was a guy, uh, and I think he, he demonstrates that it's, um, you know, the, the, the crude, like sort of Marxist way of thinking about this is not, it's definitely not untrue, but it's not completely true either. You know, like, like people can be convinced through argumentation and experience that, uh, you know, that their ideology is incorrect and that you could have a banker become like the most progressive uh, Fed chairman in the history of the institution. You can right? have class traders. That's yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, an FDR himself is a great example. But, you know, it, it is a bit of an uphill struggle, I think, in a lot of cases. It is. Yeah. So, and, we, and we so we absolutely need class traders. And and I think one of the conversations that, that Zach and I are really um, kind of trying to, to push more folks on the left to, to have. Right. Is like, you know, like Alexa, you mentioned, right. You know, the the 
the need to kind of like um, push people in kind of the middle, upper middle and, and, you know, like the professional and managerial classes, right, to really, you know, first think hard about what those kind of material interests actually are, because that's that's kind of what we were trying to lay the groundwork for in like the first installment um, of our conversation, an ongoing conversation on on working people, right, it was like we, we kind of gleaned from Zach's own personal experience, but also um you know, we were kind of jumping off from this this new book by Daniel Markovitz uh, called The Meritocracy Trap, right? We were trying to kind of use those as guides to think about, you know, like what those kind of material interests for, um, you know, like the upper middle class, you know, like actually are and what and how people in that class understand their kind of, um, you know, position within our political economy. Because I think the the one of the points that we ended up coming to, which is something that that Markovitz in his book talks about right is that you know the, the thing that I think that, that we were trying to kind of offer was that, you know, after the 2016 election, a lot of the discussion was like revolved around this question of economic anxiety. Right. And and people took that to mean, you know, that that economic anxiety only kind of exists and, and, and can push people as a um, kind of strong political force. You know, we, we were understanding that in very limited terms. Right. Uh, basically in terms of like lower income. Right. And one of the things that, um, you know, Zach was talking about uh, and that Markovitz kind of talks about, right, is that like the, the dynamics of precarity or the feelings, uh, the existential and cultural and, and even economic feelings of precariousness have kind of crept farther and farther up the socioeconomic ladder to the point that, you know, even if you are making more, you know, if you then, you know, the average um, kind of working class person, right, you may still in some in, in, in some sense be kind of living paycheck check to paycheck um, and not really kind of accumulating or saving like much wealth. And that trend and that like you know, you you see that in the the kind of uh, just constant harried anxiety of the people who work these sorts of fucking jobs, the people who always feel like they need to be working 100 hours a week to justify, you know, like their kind of like nice office and nice car and to feel like, you know, like it's more deserved, but who also in the back of their minds know that you know if they were fired or if they left their office they would be forgotten in a fucking second and you know that they could also if they got fired you know they they would not have this big kind of like windfall to to kind of prevent them from from falling off that cliff um and that 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 sort of i'm being reductive you know like here and zach can kind of um pick up where where i'm um leaving off but i think it, it is a you know important to not as ryan was saying like you restrict ourselves to kind of the crude marxist analytics um about uh people's material conditions in a, a political economy today where you know feelings of precariousness and and the capacity to accumulate wealth right have been made so uh diffuse and and that um i think operate in in kind of um more complex ways than many of us are willing to acknowledge. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. You want to jump in, Zach? Yeah. No, one of the other things that, you know, to build off that point, you know, you guys, I'm going to mention a name here that maybe you guys don't hear often, but one of the things I used to love about Adam Smith um, and not necessarily, you know, back in my, my UFC days was not the wealth of nations and sort of the construction of political economy, but, you know, 
I always interpreted him as this extreme optimist because I, you know, when you read the theory of moral sentiments, which nobody in the right mind would spend that much time reading okay. is that you realize that Smith understands that the only way or, or assumed a sort of deep empathy. And the reason he loved markets, right. Is it because rich and poor had to interact with each other all the time, right? There wasn't this vision of like, I can sit in my suburban household and just order all my shit and have it brought to me and not really have to look and like literally dropped off. I don't have to look at the person who's dropping. Right? The, the whole empathy thing is destroyed um, or has been destroyed with like in that sort of tech and gig economy and the empathy that was really sort of the fuel for the market-based system that Smith envisioned has been sort of destroyed. And then, you know, beyond that, there's this, as I don't want to get into this conversation again about bubbles and things like that, but the sort of whatever we call the upper middle class or the corporate class, you know, back to the, again, the, the, there is this feeling that, if you are fired or if you lose your job, like you are sort of teetering on an edge and there's this huge sort of disposable income gap, uh, gap too between somebody who could even be like a director and, and close to, let's say, upper management and upper management, right? If you live in an expensive city, um, the housing you have to, you know, you feel like you have to get or whatever. It's like you basically have a working class net life, but like a nicer version of it, right? You have the nicer car, you have the nicer house, but like be just as precarious. Um, and instead of interacting with folks who really kind of share your situation, you end up interacting with people who are like you and you don't talk about the problem, right? In fact, you reinforce the problem by like, oh, motherfucker, like Max just got an Audi. That means I have to get a BMW, Right. Or they just redid their kitchen after. And it just reinforces um, the precariousness of your situation, especially at a time like like right now when things are booming um, or, you know, quote unquote, booming. Uh, what that basically means is that debt is cheap and free to get. So people go out and get it and they do things like repair their house, et cetera, et cetera. And that always sort of happens right before the economy turns. And once the economy turns, it's so easy to default on all that debt you've accumulated trying to keep up with the folks that you think are sort of the standard class, right? Instead of being able to go to the market and hear stories about how people are struggling and sit back and be like, man, I'm struggling the same way. We can find solidarity that way. And so like back to a point that you guys made all the way or sort of the book you referenced a crisis wasted. I obviously don't want of a crisis, but it almost feels like the biggest thing that was wasted in the financial crisis was this ability to return a sort of empathy into the economy. And like the, the instead of protecting basically the top 20% of the economy and making sure that they didn't feel um, broad pain like everybody else, um, there was this moment to basically say like, you know, we are all fucked and the only reason the only way we're going to turn it around is by taking drastic steps to reorient the economy right what what we've been doing isn't working that to me was sort of the real promise coming out of that and that's what i thought sort of the obama presidency would deliver right um at least rhetorically that was sort of the hope but a lot of us got duped is. we got duped with obama but uh 
Yeah. Well, I mean, like that's what that's that kind of speaks to what, you know, um, Zach and I are trying to articulate here. Right. I guess like the, the, the to, to take a bird's eye view kind of um, perspective here, I think like what one of the main points that we're trying to make here. Right. Is that like the middle class, you know is not as like robust of a position as we pretend that it is right and and the 2008 recession should have like gave us a fucking crash course in that right i mean like people's like uh houses and any accumulated wealth was wiped away like fucking that right and and i think that no one who who has who is not in like the fucking ruling class at this point anyone below that is well like remembers that very vividly like they know how quickly it can all go away right they know you know like how like uh just just like um tenuous all of this is and i think that that one of the questions that we were really trying to ask both here and and in the episode we did for for working people right as i posted zach i was like so why isn't there a stronger sense of solidarity then between you know the middle and professional classes and the working class who has lived you know like working class people have lived with this sort of precariousness with this sort of you know inability to kind of accumulate wealth this kind of being one emergency away from like economic ruin right you know like if that is the shit that's keeping so many people up at night who are in kind of the 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 upper the middle and upper middle classes who the people that we think are doing much better right you know but who you know even if they're living in a nicer house and driving a nicer car are still like you know kind of ending up with like you know not that much more in their you know savings account every month than we are right why isn't there a stronger sense of solidarity then like and then you start getting into i think some really tough but interesting questions right about um I guess just like what what people want to believe about their own, you know, existence, you know, like it, uh, their own working lives, their own kind of sense of, of existential self-worth uh, in in this life. Right. And and the ways that they are, um, I guess, willing to buy into these different respective narratives about uh, how they can, in fact, distinguish themselves from your average blue collar worker, so on and so forth. Right. Then I think the real you, know, you really start to see how deep the ideological hooks can sink into, um, you know, the the meat of, you know, like these these workers in these types of jobs. Well, one thing capitalism does is it makes everyone feel responsible for their own agency and everything that they've experienced is their own fault. And, uh, and the narratives all are kind of circumscribed around that kind of moral, uh, philosophy and ideology. And so, you know, you have also like, look, you know, the consultants and the lawyers are all off doing Sudafed together at their parties where they talk about their kitchen repairs, right? They're all like uh, sharing the Sudafed and, and they're all kind of uh, cloistered and, and cut off, uh, and telling each other, right, presumably, that it's okay that we're living the lives we're living and that we're doing the jobs we're doing and we'll be okay. And your precarity, my precarity, we can bond over that. But even though it's precarity, they feel, I would think, largely different and distinct from, right, other working class people who don't do the Sudafed and talk about kitchen repairs. I, this is just like a silly example, but like, I do think that ideology can, can be kind of pernicious in that way. 
uh, where people don't see the allied, the, the similarities because they're literally in different neighborhoods and they're literally going to different parties and they're, they're sipping their fucking lattes or whatever over here and drinking their Bud Light over there. Uh, and you can have then those differences taken advantage of by people who say, you professional class, you should be scared of these people below you who are going to take your money and, and take all the, you know, benefits that the government's doling out. That's your, your hard earned tax money. And, you know, really this is your class solidarity. You're with the capitalists. That's, you know, you're like us, right? Which is the, the well, old, oldest story, right? Yeah. And it's not, it didn't have to be that drastic, right? These are the people who are going to take your money. And this is where like sort of the emerging split between, or let's just even forget Bernie and Warren, but even like, you know, the, the sort of Pete Buttigieg coalition, right? Is that you don't even have to say they're coming after all your money. You just need to give like this little like, well, you know, it's not entirely responsible to do Medicare for all. Like, you know, because you guys all have good Medicare and there are people in your office who are like executive assistants or low level accountants, whatever. And you don't want them to lose their health care. Right. So let's just have that policy for like 90 percent. And and you guys, we all got to keep sort of our our cushy thing, right? So one of the things that like it's it's very easy to support rhetorically. Again, like I think about Obama and all of the, the beautiful speeches and things like that. Um, universal programs or, or be in solidarity, like um, again in feeling or in principle or in, in or, or rhetorically with the other classes. But when the bill comes due, that's when I think the sort of elite class, not not the 1%, but sort of that, you know, 90 to 99% starts saying, well, let's hit the brakes a second. Like this, these are all really good, but we can have the same principle um, through a non-universal program, right? Medicare for all who want it versus Medicare for all. And I do think a large part of that, at least in my, my interactions with you know, people in this group, is that they just... Um, they don't want to think about their problems. And after one thing that 2008, nine taught this class is that they're the ones who are actually going to get the welfare, right? Like their situation is precarious, but that's the class that gets bailed out. And so there, there is a precariousness, but like, if it's, it's like, if I can just hang on to the crisis, we'll all be saved. Right. And by us all, it's like, you know, again, that top 10%. Um, and so, the whole game is let me just not fall out of this class. Right. I'll be taken care of. Well, and, and I wanted to um, just underline that in red pen, right? Lest anyone, I guess, mistake what, what we've been saying so far, right. Is like, I, I, I don't mean to, to suggest, right. That there is like, you know, in fact, a very thin, you know, uh, line separating, right. People in kind of the upper middle class to, you know, like the, the working class broadly understood, right. Because as Zach mentioned, right. I mean, there are very obvious kind of things that, you know, the, the majority of working people are living without, or you know, whether that's healthcare, you know, whether that is like some form of childcare, whether that's good schools, right. There are a lot of tangible material things that you, you know, like have access to um, and can take for granted, right. When you occupy these upper echelons of um, kind of the, the work ladder. But I think one, one of the things that we are trying to get across, right. Is that um, the, 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 glass floor beneath you, 
right is is not uh gonna catch you you know like it's not it's not as strong as i think you know a lot of us want to believe and i think a lot of people in the upper middle class fucking know that right they know that they you know do enjoy you know like more kind of like material comforts and securities but they also know how quickly that can all go away and i think that that feeds into what zach was saying right like that you know when the bill comes due when you have you know the option behind a closed curtain to go with a bernie sanders or pete Buttigieg, right I think that this this is an important distinction to make because we're not just talking about kind of the ruling class Koch brother type ideology, right? Where where you are literally trying to kind of just fucking smash uh, the 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 peons below you and extract as much kind of capital as you possibly can from them right you were talking about i think uh, a more affluent more college educated more elite you know um group of people who when they are behind that curtain right that sense of precariousness like really i think kind of meshes with that aspirational um kind of uh those aspirations that zach was talking about professional cultural political aspirations right that that make them uh probably the most worried class of people when it comes to thinking about systemic change because they are thinking about how quickly they could end up on the wrong side of another 2008 crisis does that make sense yeah yeah and i mean i feel like the uh the general uh way of thinking you know as i think you've mentioned before is is kind of meritocracy you know for people who have made it reasonably far up the income ladder um they they think you know they they have been taught their whole lives you know they probably have you know advanced degrees went to good schools or whatever have a good job that they deserve that they earned that and that if you were to fall down the economic ladder a number of rungs that would be incredibly humiliating um and so that's to be avoided at any cost but i think you know what you know the the way that i've I've been sort of trying to advance this argument, who knows if it's, you know, has any sort of traction, uh, is is, uh, inspired in some ways by uh, FDR's 1932 campaign, which was centered on the idea of a kind of egalitarian economic interdependence, that what uh, people had failed to realize during the Depression was that the whole economy was... Uh, you know, like this big collective machine. And it wasn't the case that people, you know, sort of went out and, uh, uh, you know, ate what they killed and they earned their place. It's like, it's a thing that that it, it re- requires everyone operating in concert. And, um, you know, if if you can sort of, you know, bring people around to that way of thinking, then you can see that the real security, that if that if you really want to live a sort of carefree life, even if you are a nurse or a doctor or whatever, is to say that like the, that 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 number one, the the like income is going to be broadly distributed, and so the economy will be profoundly strong, and we won't have these sort of like repeat bubbles and hideous inequality and and all sorts of financial crimes going on all the time. And then on the other hand, there'll be sort of a social floor. That is really like pretty far up so that no matter how far you go, no matter what disaster overtakes you, um, you will have your very basic needs 
taken care of somehow or another. And, you know, if you can, you know, I feel like that meritocracy ideology is kind of dissolving slowly. I mean, people, people, uh, they, they, they don't want to, you know, ditch their childhood beliefs, but like you see Trump as president, the most fucking inept asshole in history at the very top of the heap. You think like the table is tilted, you know? And so, in, you know, I feel like that that argument is getting slowly, gradually more and more purchased to just say, like, look, there we are all in this together. There's no way around it. You know, you can try to cheat and like, you know, rig the system in your own benefit. But to do that is itself risky and unfair. And you know? people care about how they're judged. And, and we still have a little bit of hero worship with like. The Elon Musks of the world are the innovators, and they're the risk takers. Fuck, he's not taking any fucking risks. He's certainly bearing no risks. You know who takes and bears risks? The working class. Anyway, yeah, but like he got a big government loan. To yeah, start exactly. His right, he's a parasite. So, but you know, the billionaire class is being attacked really well, and I think people are starting to be like, wait a minute, I care about what people think about me, and even if I'm not precarious, even if I have a comfortable six-figure job or seven-figure job, whatever it is is, um, maybe I care about, you know, meaning in life and, and the fact that I'm a parasite or contributing to the inequality or the crises rather than, you know, the idea from the socialist left, which is that like, until everyone's free, no one's free, right? And then the, the Eugene Debs quote, right? Uh, about if there's a uh, criminal class, uh, I'm of it, right? And if there's yeah. a, a I, I forget the quote, but you guys know this 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 quote. Um, yeah. The idea being the solidarity that grounds the the left movement is one that says your meaning and your value isn't just purely your material conditions, but it's bound up with how everyone else in our in our community, whatever that might mean, uh, and ultimately it means the international global community, right? As as Max mentioned earlier, so that I hope is the next step. Um, you know, and it's part of a part of the strategy to kind of hopefully bring more and more people into the fold to realize, look, capitalism sucks for everyone, even if you're not in a precarious position, even if you're a fucking capitalist, you're still a miserable fuck like Trump, right? <laughs> like your life sucks in part because you can't escape how miserable the meaning making is in capitalism, right? And if you're buying in and succeeding in it, all the more miserable you're going to be because you've alienated yourself from from love, from human relationships, and from like Dostoevsky and where actual meaning, right, lies or lays, whichever grammatical fucking yeah. word, you know. <laughs> you get right. more utils I mean, that way. You get more utils, yeah. I mean, like, yeah, and, <laughs> and you know, by by way of, um, I guess, kind of wrapping up on, on that point, Alexi, I thought it was, it was very well put. Right, like uh, I wrote about this recently in Current Affairs. Right when I when I watched the the, the video of a, a Guatemalan migrant boy dying in custody of the flu, right, and it was it was you know really really just broke my heart and broke my brain and it and it made me so furious. And I think that it for the very it, it did so for those same reasons that you're articulating, right? Because I think that more and more people are feeling this way. And and the veil 
more and more has come off, right? You know, what, because of a, a multiplicity of factors, because of people like Bernie Sanders, but also because of, you know, just uh, entire communities and generations of people pushing back against the accepted wisdom and, and, and kind of the seeming permanence of capitalist common sense that we, you know, have always been told to believe is the only game in town, right? The more people we have pushing on that kind of, um, you, you know, like, like I said, the seeming permanence of these sorts of ideological systems and, and questioning uh, whether or not they are justified and whether or not there's something better and whether or not we as human beings were meant for more than this and could be more than this. I think the more of us that are doing that, the more that we in our hearts are starting to ask the sorts of questions like, you know, what, what real joy has this fucking system allowed us to feel? Uh, that that doesn't come at the expense of the misery of so many others, the pain, the death, the the destruction of our planet, of of poor and working class communities. That is all that capitalism really has to offer people. It has all of these fucking conditions upon the things that make us most human, that make us that make life most worth living. It has taken those and packaged them and sold them back to us in all of these compromised forms that don't allow us to really enjoy the most, you know, uh, enjoyable parts of being alive and being human together, because it always comes at the cost of, uh, of the, you know, lives and sufferings of our fellow humans. And I think that the more that we, as uh, you know, a, a society ask the question, like what sorts of joy feelings ha have been like stolen from us? What sorts of capacities do we have to feel, um, not just joy, but togetherness and a sense of purpose that exceeds the boundaries of what capitalism has, has allowed for us, that exceeds the bounds of just working hard, toiling for 40, 50, 60 years until you die because there's dignity in work as such, right? What could what else could we be living for what else could we be doing with our lives and with our uh, the vast amount of resources that our society has besides you know scooping off as much pain and misery from our fellow human beings to make a buck for a, a handful of wealthy fuckers at the very top and destroying our planet in the process it doesn't that doesn't have to be the only game in town there are other ways that we could be living there are better ways there are more just ways there are ways that would allow us to feel the things that make you know like being human you know worthwhile without kind of coming at the expense of you know all the the all the things that other human beings deserve as well. And I think that, that the more of us who are asking those sorts of questions, the more that we are telling each other, it's good, it's right and just and good for you to want that. You deserve that. You should want that. And you should fight tooth and nail against the forces that are telling you that it's impossible. Yeah. Preach brother. Yeah. Well, we're, uh, well over an hour now. That's probably a good place to wrap up. Um, any final comments, Zach? No, I think uh, Max said it beautifully. I don't want to screw it up by adding my own finishing <laughs> touch to that. <laughs> my cosign. That was beautiful. All right. Well, uh, Zach and Maximilian Alvarez, uh, thanks for coming on the show. Um, yeah, appreciate the discussion. Been a pleasure. It's, it's wonderful. I hope to have you both. We can host you. you. Come to Philly. We'll have a great time. Yeah. Oh, I love Philly. 
I'm out yeah. there four times a year. All right. All right. Yeah. Go yeah. bird. Go birds. Yeah. <laughs> I went to there's, birds. There's always yeah. next year. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks All for right. having us on, guys. Thanks, guys. Pleasure. Thanks, guys. Yeah. Cheers. Cheers. Bye bye.